Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome to a special episode of the Superhumanize podcast, where we delve into the world of democracy, political science, and the challenges facing modern societies. Today, we have the distinct honor of hosting Stephen Levitsky, a luminary in the field of comparative politics and a Harvard University professor renowned for his incisive analysis of democracies and authoritarian regimes. Stephen Levitsky is not just an academic authority. He is a pivotal voice in understanding the dynamics of political systems worldwide. As the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government at Harvard, Levitsky brings a wealth of knowledge, especially in the realms of democratization, political parties, and the complex interplay between authoritarianism and democracy. His profound insights into these subjects have established him as a go-to expert in understanding the intricacies of political systems. Levitsky's work transcends academic circles, impacting the broader public discourse. He is the co-author of the groundbreaking and New York Times bestselling book, How Democracies Die, a seminal work that examines the conditions leading to the breakdown of democratic systems from within. This book has not only garnered critical acclaim, but also sparked crucial conversations about the state of democracies worldwide. His latest book, Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point, co-authored with Daniel Ziblatt, takes a hard look at the U.S. Constitution and the challenges it poses in today's political landscape. This work is particularly relevant as we approach the 2024 elections, providing crucial insights into the structural and ideological challenges facing American democracy. In this episode, we will explore Levitsky's profound research and thoughts on democracy's resilience, the evolving nature of authoritarian regimes, and the pressing need for constitutional reforms in the United States. Join us for an enlightening conversation with Stephen Levitsky as we navigate the complex waters of political science and democracy and understand what it truly takes to sustain and strengthen democratic institutions in challenging times. This is an episode you won't want to miss, especially for those of you passionate about the future of our political systems and the role we all play in shaping it. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Stephen, welcome to the Superhumanize podcast. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thanks for having me. I could not wait for this conversation. 
you are somebody whose work I've uh, followed and admired. And I think the scope of what you do is so important, especially with regards to the times we are going through, not only in the U.S., but globally. And something that I think is crucial to point out and also to talk about is your work often emphasizes the resilience of democracy in the face of authoritarian threats. And in your view, what are the key factors that historically have contributed to the resilience of democracies? Over the long haul, things like a wealthier, more economically developed society is much better able to sustain democracy than poorer ones. And in general, places where all sorts of different resources, beginning with money, but including access to education and other things, where resources are dispersed throughout society rather than concentrated in a few hands and particularly concentrated in the government's hands, societies have much better capacity to fend off authoritarian rules. So well-developed, relatively wealthy societies where resources are dispersed, that's the long-term key. But in the short term, when democracies are threatened and threats emerge from time to time in, in most democracies, really in all of them, and, and this is something we may have thought we were immune to it in the United States, but we're seeing that we, that we face a, a serious threat here. When threats emerge, uh, whether it's a, 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 an individual demagogue or a political party or a political movement that, that threatens democracy, it's really critical that political leaders, political elites from across the political spectrum, all of those who are committed to democracy, that they join forces, that they recognize the threat, that they're willing to set aside, at least in the short term, their short-term political ambitions or their short-term policy goals, and that they join forces to isolate and defeat the authoritarians. The, a broad coalition in defense of democracy is essential. Indeed, Stephen. And do you feel that's actually happening in the U.S.? There's been a lot of talk about American democracy being in peril. And of course, in your latest book, Tyranny of the Minority, you actually critically examine, for example, the U.S. Constitution's role in the per current political landscape. What led you to focus actually on American democracy and what do you believe is most needed right now? A bunch of questions packed in there. We can see if we can get to, to them one by one. I, by training, am a, a scholar of Latin American politics. That, that's, what I, that's what I do in my day job. I teach and research about Latin America, which has led me to gain a lot of experience in studying democracies in crisis and, and democratic breakdowns. And the reason that I'm focused on the United States now is because I live in the United States. I'm a U.S. citizen. I care deeply about the fate of our democracy. And, but as a Latin Americanist, I think I have a, a, a better perspective than perhaps those who only study the United States on what can go wrong in, in a democracy. When my, my co-author, Daniel Ziblatt, is a scholar of Europe, particularly interwar Europe, and particularly Germany. And so both of us, when Donald Trump emerged on the scene in 2015, both of us felt like we had seen this movie before. We'd heard this kind of language, this sort of discourse before, and we knew that the movie didn't end well, which is not to say that the United States was condemned to fascism, but 
we I think we were among the first who saw that this could go very wrong. And so I have tried to, as of many other political scientists, to marshal what we know about democratic crises in other parts of the world and give Americans who were pretty, who took, who generations of Americans had taken U.S. democracy for granted. Nobody six, seven, eight years ago thought that U.S. democracy could fail. Um, and so we've been trying to, to teach Americans the warning signs and what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of how U.S. has, has fared, it, it's been mixed. It's very important that we survived the 2020 election, that, that we removed Trump from office in 2020, 2021. I think the judicial system has worked relatively well so far, but the crisis persists. And we can talk about why, but fundamentally, a democracy cannot be healthy and probably cannot survive if one of the two major parties is not fully committed to democratic rules of the game. And that's the problem that we're facing right now. It's not just Trump anymore. The entire Republican Party has has loosened its commitment to playing by democratic rules. And how, from your perspective, how did this develop? Because, of course, this is not an overnight thing. No, it, not only is it not an overnight thing, it's not a very common thing. If you look around the world, and we did this for tyranny of the minority, we looked for comparable cases. It's very unusual that an established mainstream political party like the Republican Party, which has been competing peacefully in elections for more than 150 years, it's very unusual that a mainstream party kind of goes off the rails like this and walks away from democracy. Usually, anti-democratic parties are born anti-democratic. They're born Stalinist or communist in early 20th century Europe, or they're born fascist. The Nazi party was always an authoritarian party. But it's not common for a mainstream party to, to go off the rails in this way. And we looked around at other cases. We looked at U.S. history and came to the conclusion that parties walk away from democracy in this way out of fear, out of a sort of outsized fear of losing. And that happens when when elections, when the party, its leaders, its constituents, its base, its activists begin to feel like losing an election or losing elections will bring catastrophic consequences. Because in a democracy, parties have to be able to lose. That's how democracy works. Parties have to be able to tolerate losing. Losing has to be okay. Nobody likes losing, but it has to be okay. And when a political party begins to perceive that losing poses an existential threat, that it could bring something catastrophic, that's when they go off the rails. And maybe the best comparison, if I could say this really quickly, is to the Democratic Party in the United States after the Civil War, during the period of Reconstruction. During Reconstruction, uh, African-Americans were enfranchised for the first time. And they were enfranchised very rapidly and very thoroughly to the point where more than 80% of African-Americans were very quickly enfranchised by 1867, 1868. African-Americans constituted a majority, an outright majority, or a near majority in just about every Southern state. So overnight, half the population can vote that couldn't vote before. Mm -hmm. That meant 
not only that the Democratic Party, which was the party uh, uh, that defended slavery and defended white supremacy, not only would the Democratic Party electoral dominance be threatened, but the entire racial order in the South was threatened. And so Southern Democrats viewed this, they viewed Reconstruction, they viewed African-American suffrage as an existential threat, and they turned violent. And Americans don't often know very much about this period, but in the early and mid-1870s, the Democratic Party used violence, used terrorism, used election fraud to seize power across the South, to illegally seize power across the South, and eventually to establish single-party rule, single-party authoritarian rule in the South that lasted for about 80 years. That was out of fear of losing. And we fear, and we can talk about this if you want, that something similar is happening to the Republican Party today as the United States makes this momentous transition to multiracial democracy, to, to being an, a multi-ethnic democracy. So from the, thank you for illuminating this, Stephen. I would absolutely love to talk about this in more depth. So what is the actual existential threat, the catastrophic consequences that are feared? What is this picture of a dystopia that these fear-based individuals and, and also groups have in mind? So I'm going to make a distinction between the dystopia that people have in mind. And as you know, there are a lot of Americans um, who carry around all sorts of conspiracy theories, Americans of all kinds, not just on the, the political right, but People have a lot of dystopian ideas in their mind about what could happen. More concretely, what the research seems to suggest is that what is threatening a couple of things. One is there has been an awful lot of cultural change in this country over the last half century. But I think most fundamentally, long-established social and racial hierarchies have been challenged very quickly. I'm going to I'm going to cast a, a very I'm going to say a very sweeping thing here. But in effect, for 200 years in this country, all of this country's political hierarchies, economic hierarchies, social hierarchies, cultural hierarchies, everything that mattered, all of them were dominated by by white men and particularly white Protestant men. It's it, all the way. I'm not a, an old guy. I'm in my 50s. All the way through my teenage years, every single president, every single vice president, every single leader in Congress, every single Supreme Court chief justice, every single commander of the military, every single governor, every single Fortune 500 CEO, every one of them, every single freaking Miss America, every one of them, all the way through my teenage years was white. That is changing relentlessly, rapidly right before our eyes, right before the eyes of my generation. We see it in a, in a wide number of, of ways. The, in 1965, all nine Supreme Court justices were white men. Today, only four out of nine are white men. Only six of the nine are white. The number of black and Latino members of Congress has quadrupled since my bar mitzvah, quadrupled since 1981. The, the, the percentage of Congress that is African-American today is now for the first time in history equal to the percentage of African-Americans in the population. African-Americans are no longer underrepresented in Congress. 
You see the change in on TV screens. When I was a kid, when you watch television commercials, all the families in TV commercials were white. All of them. We now see interracial families, mixed families, non-white families in TV commercials all the time. It's a dramatic change. You see it in the fact that long-established, long-accepted narratives about this country's uh, long-established narratives that that downplayed and even ignored elements of this country's past, it, it's, it's, its racist past, those narratives are being challenged in classrooms. They're being challenged in universities. They're being challenged in newsrooms, in, in the media, for the first time in the last 20 or 30 years. You see it in the fact that acts of racism now, now generate much greater societal pushback than they did before. Think of the Black Lives Matter movement. These are dramatic changes just in the just really in the 21st century. Yeah. And so racial hierarchies and social hierarchies in general are being challenged like never before. And that, I think, is what constitutes the fundamental threat. It mm -hmm. is a losing one's dominant status, losing one's dominant status, one's group's dominant status can be very threatening. It can generate feelings of loss. It can generate feelings of resentment. It can generate feelings of fear. Mm -hmm. There was a survey that came out, and this is the last thing I'll say, in early 2021, that found that more than 50%, that a majority of Republican voters agreed with the statement that our national way of life is changing so fast that we may need to use force to stop it. A dramatic change in 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 the the composition of our society, and particularly the dramatic change in the the pre-existing social hierarchies, feels very threatening to those who used to be at the top. Indeed, Stephen, and but so interesting to me. I acknowledge that my perspective is very different. I grew up as born in Germany. With eight weeks, moved to West Africa to Sierra Leone. Every three to four years, moved into another country. My father was an ambassador for Germany. So I grew up in cultures as diverse as West African culture, India, Spain, Germany, the U.S. For me, diversity was never something threatening. For me, it was always something enlight enlivening, something positive. And change, life is change. Stagnancy is basically death. Something that's important to acknowledge here also is that the human brain, this is just our hard wiring. We, the human brain perceives change as threat. The number one job of the human brain is to keep us, to keep the organism alive. So the status quo, if we're alive in the status quo, that's a good thing. Why change anything? So we're aside from- conservatives. Exactly. Yeah. So aside from any emotional grievances we may have or such, it is literally a the brain is in a high alert threat state when change occurs and when we can't control things. So my question is, even though I see myself clearly on the side, I endorse change. I, I like change. I like personally what I'm seeing. However, I realize a large part of the population is either very uncomfortable or completely off the rails because of it, operating from a basis of fear, which is never a good place to make decisions from. So that being said, what can be done to alleviate this state? It's literally a state of fight or flight. What can be done to alleviate that? that is a, that's a great question. First of all, it's important to recognize that there is no turning back. 
that, and this is not just the United States, Western Europe is going through very similar processes mm-hmm. of thanks to large scale immigration over the last few decades. Um, Western democracies are becoming much more culturally diverse and there's no turning back. So we're going to have to, as societies, we're going to have to adapt to that. I would say two things in, in response to your very good question. I say th- three things. First of all, we haven't figured out the answer yet. But first, the, the two things I'd point to are, one, this change is happening at a time of really pretty intense economic insecurity for many middle and working class people in both Europe and the United States. Levels of inequality have increased pretty dramatic, very dramatically in the United States, a little less so in Western Europe, but they've increased in Europe too. Levels of social mobility have declined, meaning that for the first time in many generations, uh, Americans today can't necessarily aspire to a better life than their parents. And particularly since the economic crisis of 2008 and 9, middle Americans and, and middle-class Europeans feel a level of economic insecurity that has really not been felt in a very long time in the West. And so economic policies that, that one, re- do, do a better job of redistributing income and, two, provide a greater degree of economic security to people would not end this problem of resistance to change, but it would give people a more solid basis on which to would at least alleviate insecurity and fear on the economic material side, which is very important. The Europeans in general have done this better than the Americans. We have a very small, very limited welfare state that we've been dismantling really in many senses for decades in the U.S. But throughout the West, I think we're going to have to take seriously the insecurity, economic insecurity of the middle and working class. The other thing, and here in the United States, I think we've really fallen down, is that leaders have to speak to have, have to speak to their followers. Yes, rank and file, call them MAGA or Republican voters. Many of them are afraid of change. Many of them are, are very insecure in the face of all these changes. It would help a lot if their leaders told them the truth rather than reinforce it. Not only their leaders, but media figures, religious leaders, the people that they listen to, the people who have some authority and some influence over their lives. If they told them the truth, rather than fanning fear, rather than fanning conspiracy theories, which is what right-wing media and and political figures have been doing now for a few decades, that would help a lot. Elites have a major role in defending democracy. And when elites don't assume that role, when when they abdicate their responsibility for defending norms, for telling the truth, for calming people rather than stoking their fears. Um, it's, it is true that we're hardwired to, to respond to change with fear, but we're hardwired to do a lot of things that we learn to, to overcome. And if, if our political leaders didn't stoke that fear, we'd be in a much better place today. Absolutely, Stephen. However, there's oftentimes also yeah, vested interests in why certain conspiracy theories get fanned or why buttons get pushed instead of people calming people down. Something else that really piqued my curiosity and that I would love for you to illuminate for our audience is the following. In 
your book, The Tyranny of the Minority, you discuss the Electoral College's impact on democracy. And my question to you is, what would the implications be of keeping or abolishing the system for U.S. elections? is a weird institution. Let me give you just a tiny bit of history. The United States was a in many respects, the modern world's, or at least the West's first large republic. Every When the U.S. was founded, every other, every country in Europe was a monarchy. And so when we got rid of our monarchy and decided we were going to elect our leaders, we had no idea how to do it. Our founders had no idea how to do it. There was no blueprint. There was no model to follow. And so they debated in the summer of, of 1787, there were advocates for directly electing the president. That was shot down by the South, which worried that the North would overwhelm the South in terms of votes and threaten slavery. There, what Madison, one of our great framers, pushed what the kind of system that now exists in Europe in which Congress would elect the president, which is the, like a prime minister, but that was voted down. And at, Towards the end, the framers of the Constitution were pretty exacerbated. Every alternative that had been discussed was voted down, and they came up with the Electoral College as sort of an improvisation. And the idea, at least for its advocates, was that it would be, it would be a body filled with enlightened nobility, in effect, mm-hmm. who would temper the, the, the choices of voters. But the thing is, it never worked that way. It very quickly became what it is today, which is essentially just a partisan vehicle. It gets filled with with partisans and just becomes a partisan vehicle. But the problem with the Electoral College is it distorts the vote. It's possible to have the winner of the Electoral College be the loser of the popular vote. And that wasn't a big issue for most of U.S. history because it never happened. It, it came close to happening. It was threatened to happen, but it very rarely happened. It's only in the 21st century that it's happening more frequently. It's happening for somewhat complicated reasons, but because the Electoral College has a rural bias. It's biased towards sparsely populated territories. For most of U.S. history, both parties had urban and rural wings, so it didn't really matter. Washed out. But in the 21st century, for the first time, our parties are divided along urban and rural lines. The Democrats are an urban-based party, like most center-left parties in the West. And the Republicans are an increasingly a party of small towns and the countryside, like most right-wing parties in the West. And that gives the Republicans, through no fault of their own, an advantage in the Electoral College. And it's allowed them twice in, the, in, in a single generation to win the presidency despite losing the popular vote. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting that uh, the U.S. was obviously a model for at least for Latin America in the early 19th century, the American Revolution was very inspirational. And so Latin American elites copied the United States and almost all of Latin America adopted presidential systems with an electoral college in the 19th century. Every single one of those presidential democracies, not only in Latin America, but across the world, every single one of them has subsequently gotten rid of its electoral college. We are the only presidential democracy on earth in which, with the Electoral College, and the only presidential democracy in which the loser of the popular vote can actually win the presidency. Mm-hmm. And as we were learning, that 
not only is that inherently undemocratic, but it's beginning to sap the legitimacy of our system, right? For America, I'm old. I grew up, I remember the 80s and 90s. I remember when the winner of the popular vote used to win the presidency. But if you grew up in the 21st century, if you, if all you know of American politics is 21st century politics, you've grown up in an era in which the loser of the popular vote wins the presidency almost as frequently as the winner of the popular vote. How much are you going to believe in that democracy? And there's a great, I'm very fearful that if it happens again in 2024, which is quite possible, if it happens for the third time in 24 years, we're going to lose at least one generation of Americans. We're just going to give up and say, I don't live under a democracy. Mm, excellent. So we, so we call for the abolition of the Electoral College in our book. Yes. And how would this be possible? What kind of a transition, what kind of a process would need to be put in place? It, there are some end arounds, but the most straightforward way of doing it is a constitutional amendment that, that simply replaces the Electoral College with a direct popular vote. The United States, among democracies, has the hardest constitution in the world to amend. So this is not an easy thing to do. But Americans forget that we came very close to abolishing the Electoral College in 1969, 1970, just a little over half a century ago. The Back in 1969, President Nixon supported abolition of the Electoral College. Both political parties supported abolition of the Electoral College. The AFL-CIO, the leading labor movement, and the American Chamber of Commerce both supported abolishing the Electoral College. The American Bar Association supported abolishing the Electoral College. It overwhelmingly passed the House of Representatives, and abolition of the Electoral College had a majority of senators behind it as well. It just did not reach the two-thirds vote that it needed. So it was it came just shy of passage. So it's not impossible. But another thing that Americans tend to forget is that this country has a long history of democratic reform. It has a long history of working to make our system more democratic. It's beginning with the Bill of Rights, which was passed just two years after the Constitution, through the expansion of suffrage, the very important Reconstruction reforms, the Progressive Era reforms, the Civil Rights Movement, Almost throughout our entire history, we have been discussing ways and working to make our system more democratic. For hmm. reasons that I'm, we're still trying to understand, it's only in the last 50 years that we've just stopped. We just stopped as a society talking about, thinking about ways of making our system more democratic. It's the only period in history where we just froze everything and said, okay, we're done. What we had in the past is the best practice. And I think that's a big mistake. We need to get back to an earlier American tradition of working to make our system better, make our system more democratic. And in that context, I think we we will, I think elect, once we do that, electoral college reform will be at the top of the agenda because it's just indefensible from a democratic standpoint. Agreed, Stephen. And uh, what you actually just uh, mentioned would have been my next question. And you said you don't have an answer to why that's happening yet, but maybe you have some ideas. And so the question is, why did this process of a live democracy that keeps bettering itself 
and us as a society having a discourse about that and putting things in place to actually become even better and stronger within our democracies. Why has this frozen? I think there are a, a couple of reasons. One is in in conservative political thought, conservative judicial thought, there's been uh, the emergence of um, a very st- a strong uh, tendency towards originalism, textualism, towards this sort of this notion, which is a, a very sort of effective conservative idea that what we, what the founders wrote down is by definition best practice, that we can't what was written into the original constitution and its amendments. And that idea of originalism is it's very effective for those who uh, want to prevent political change, but it runs against the really the core notion of reform and reformism. The idea that we can innovate, that we can learn, that we might be able to, God forbid, learn from other countries, other democracies, and that Times change, economies change, societies change, technologies change, demographics change, and we sometimes need to update our institutions to reflect that. No, no less an authority than George Washington knew that. George Washington, just a couple of months after the, the writing of the Constitution, wrote a letter to his nephew in which he, he described the new Constitution as an imperfect document and said that it would be up to future generations to get it right, to perfect it. And again, for most of our history, future generations did. That's one thing. The other thing, which is more straightforward, is simply that, again, the U.S. Constitution is very hard to amend. And it it requires, because we need two-thirds, both houses of Congress, plus three-quarters of the state legislatures, there absolutely must be a, a degree of bipartisan consensus to make any kind of constitutional reform. That's fine, but it's not possible when the two parties are intensely polarized. And so our era of polarization, especially the last 30-ish years, has made bipartisan compromise, even passing a budget, is is really hard. So how are we going to get the two parties together behind a constitutional reform? I think that fundamentally is what's making it so hard. Yes, and what comes to mind also as you are explaining this to us is I personally am blessed with a very eclectic circle of friends and family, people who follow all kinds of different philosophies, religions, who vote differently. Something that strikes me, and this is more common actually in the, a lot of times in the older generations of those who are identified as being conservative, especially here in the US, is, and I've brought that up with a few very dear family members and also friends is that even when you are conservative, people tend to forget that change has also been vital in putting you into the place where you're at now. If things wouldn't have changed and if people would have always stuck with this is the status quo and we're holding on to it no matter what, particularly if it would be a woman, you actually wouldn't even be able to vote. We would still have child labor. We would still have slavery. We would still have a lot of things that you personally actually would absolutely not agree with. So I think people often tend to forget that even when they identify themselves with, okay, I have conservative values. I want to hold on to the old ways. The old ways were also not the old ways at some point. 
people were considered radical. Uh, suffragettes were considered absolutely obnoxious, radical, uh, a threat to society, right? So things change and things change for the better as long as we open up and um, are not just completely reactionary and in fear. So and this, this is why uh, movements for constitutional reform do, do take a long time. They're, these are not, I, I would never recommend that any country undertake constitutional reforms overnight. They, they have to be publicly discussed, debated in, in society. And you're right. Oftentimes, the reforms initially, reforms that now seem commonplace, necessary, when they're first put on the table, seem crazy. Not just in the United States, in Europe, in 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 Europe, when a number of countries in Europe abolished their up their undemocratic or unelected upper chambers, and conservatives screamed that this would be the end of of the political system, that the Western civilization would come crashing down. Same thing when the Brits weakened the House of Lords back in the early part of the 20th century. Conservatives screamed that if you weaken the Lords, the masses would overrun the country, and and Britain would sink into the ocean often does not happen. But it takes time for often generations of people to become accustomed. So we write in our book about the, the women's suffrage movement. When it first emerges in the early half of the 19th century, almost a century before the women's suffrage is actually achieved. And initially, especially before the Civil War, also immediately after it, people treated suffragettes as nuts. The idea that women would vote was considered crazy, lunacy, radical, fringe. Obviously, we don't look at it that way today. And I'm pretty convinced that reforms like basic reforms, like adding a constitutional right to vote, abolishing the electoral college so that electoral majorities actually win elections, and establishing term limits on Supreme Court justices like every other democracy in the world, that those reforms once we actually achieve them, we'll look back on them and say, that's pretty normal. Absolutely. And I could not agree with you more, Stephen. And the I personally have shared with you, with many others, concern about the 2024 elections. They pose a significant challenges, also opportunities for this American democracy. You've expressed concern about this in your book in your work. And I'd like to learn from you, what are your main concerns and what steps can voters and also policymakers take to ensure the democratic process? Great question. Look, if there is a cardinal rule in democracy, it's that you have to accept, everybody has to accept the results of elections, win or lose. And it is very hard to sustain a democracy if the those who lose the election don't accept what happened in 2020 was unprecedented in the United States. Um, never before had an incumbent president refused to accept defeat. Never before had an incumbent president attempted actively to overturn the results of the election. We survived that, but the guy who tried to overturn the election has is about to be renominated. And, is, and it has the probably even greater support within his party and control over his party 
than he had four years ago, certainly much more than he had in 2016. And again, it, it's a challenge it, to sustain a democracy when one of the two parties and one of the two main candidates is not committed to democratic rules. And Donald Trump proved in 2020, 2021, that he was willing to openly violate the cardinal rule of democracy. Now, there are steps that we can take and, and should take to, there are, there are steps that we have taken and there are steps we have not taken. I think the one, one minor but important step was a reform of the Electoral Count Act that will make it harder for Trump's allies to pull off the shenanigans that they tried to pull around not certifying the results of the election in, in 2020, in early 2021. That has been, to a large extent, fixed to a, actually bipartisan reform. The, the, the main thing that hasn't happened is a critical act of self-policing by the Republican Party. Again, as, as I said earlier, a democracy really hinges heavily on its elites, on its political leaders. Political leaders have to act responsibly to say to, to preserve a democracy. They cannot abdicate their authority. And political leaders, political parties are gatekeepers. It's their job. It's a political party's job to select candidates for higher office. That's a big responsibility because you're selecting people who are going to be given an enormous amount of power over Americans' lives. And so at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of Republican Party leaders to, to filter out individuals who are not committed to democracy. And Republican leaders know that. They say it in private. They even said it in public after January 6, 2021. And they had an opportunity, the, the, a clear-cut opportunity, when Trump was impeached a second time in January 2021. Had Republicans voted to convict Trump, he would have been prevented from running in the 2024 election. That would not have resolved all of our problems, but it would have kept a very popular demagogue who is at odds with the really even the most fundamental norms and rules of our democracy would have kept him off the ballot. The, it, the healthiest, most stable, most democratic way to do that, to keep a demagogue off the ballot is for his own party to do it. They had the chance. They knew that they should. If you talk to Mitch McConnell and other senators in private, they know they're not naive. They know the danger that Trump poses, but they failed to do it. I think they failed to rise. I think it's a combination of things. I think they some of them don't quite get the threat that they know who Trump is, but they don't quite get the crisis that this country could slide into under a second Trump term. But mostly they just fail. It's, it requires that Republicans, their own short-term political interests to the side in, in, in the name of a longer-term greater good. And Mitch McConnell what wanted to regain a majority in the Senate. That was his overriding ambition. Kevin McCarthy wanted to become Speaker of the House. That was his overriding ambition. He, both of those guys knew 
that completely breaking with Trump, the throwing Donald Trump up under the bus, that impeaching and convicting Trump in early 2021, despite the fact that McConnell and McCarthy were both super clear, they knew very well the danger that Trump posed. Impeaching and convicting him would have angered part of the base. It would have, without question, cost McCarthy the speakership. He never would have become House Speaker, which was his goal. And it might well have thrown the Republican Party into enough chaos that it, that the Republicans couldn't win control of the Senate as McConnell wanted. Turns out they didn't win control of the Senate anyway, but that was his goal. These guys were unable. It's, it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask a politician, sacrifice their own political ambition for the good of democracy. I get that. And, and that's why only a minority of politicians do it. Liz Cheney did that. Mitt yeah. Romney did that. Adam Kinzinger did that. It's a lot to ask. But if a democracy is going to survive a crisis, if German democracy were going to survive the crisis of the early 30s, if Italian democracy were going to survive the crisis of the 1920s, if Spanish democracy were to survive the crisis of the early 30s, if, and I'm not comparing a, the US today to Germany in the 30s, but for to survive a crisis, politicians have to step up and do the right thing. They have to recognize the threat, and they have to be willing to sacrifice. Sometimes they are. And we, in, in both of our books, we point to cases in which politicians do step up and do the right thing. We can talk about what happened in Brazil just a couple of years ago, where right-wing politicians did step up and do the right thing. But in the United States, they were not willing. Mm. And history won't look, history will not look kindly upon them. No. And speaking to a lot of people, who they're Republican, they vote Republican. A lot of them actually say, this is from my personal experience, yeah, he's not a good guy, but the other guy or whatever is not an alternative. And what's the worst that could happen? So what is the worst that could happen? The worst, we should step back, realize that things that none of us ever imagined could happen have already happened, right? The U.S. Capitol hadn't been hadn't been suffered a violent attack since the British in 1812. And yet we had a violent assault on our capital that brought that that led to, to to deaths. We had an attempt to overturn to violently overturn the results of an election. That's something that a decade ago Americans would have thought unthinkable. Just a quick side note that there are organizations that score every country in the world for give each country a democracy score and rate the level of democracy across the world every year. One of them is Freedom House. It's a sort of well-established U.S.-based NGO. It has a global freedom index, a score between zero and 100 that it assigns to every country. Ten years ago, the United States got a score of 92 out of 100. That's pretty good. It was a couple points below Germany. It's a couple points below Canada a little bit above Italy, tied with uh, Japan, close to the UK, right up there with other Western democracies. Today, as a result of what's gone on in the last five years, the United States score has fallen to 83. That's still a democracy, but it's lower. It's tied with Romania. It's lower than Mongolia. It's lower than Argentina. That may shock you. That may shock American readers to, that we are, that a, a credible organization thinks the United States today is less democratic than Argentina. But when you have efforts to restrict access to the vote, 
when you have violent threats against elected officials and elected workers and judges and prosecutors, and when you have an attempt by an incumbent president to overturn the results of an election, you reach a point where Freedom House considers you less democratic than Argentina, because that doesn't happen in Argentina. That was all. So what's happened is already pretty bad. We have to remember, think about the threat of violence. In a democracy, politicians make decisions based on what? They make decisions based on what's going to get them votes, what's going to help them win the primary, what's going to help them win the next election. We may not love that, but that's how democracy politics works in a democracy. What's happening now? If you look at the, for example, Mitt Romney's biography, recent biography, he describes how many senators in the very important vote to convict Trump, many senators' calculus was shaped by fear of what might happen to them or their families, fear of violence against them. So they didn't vote to uh, acquit Trump because they thought it was the right thing to do. They didn't vote to acquit Trump because it would help them win the election. They voted to acquit Trump because they feared for their families' lives. That's pretty bad. That's where we are. What else could happen? We could easily fall into a, a place where the Justice Department, because Trump is telling us he will do this, the, the Justice Department will begin to investigate and, and bring charges against critics of the government, critics of Trump. Now, those people may not be convicted in the courts because we still have a pretty independent judiciary, but they may be forced to spend months of their time in courts and spend their life savings just to stay out of prison. That's going to harass hundreds, maybe thousands of people and push a number of our best people out of the public sphere because they don't want to be harassed by the government. We could be in a position where many of our best public fi figures are harassed into retirement. We may, we, levels of political violence have been increasing in the United States, street violence, mob violence. We may see more street killings, more clashes on the streets in which people are killed, like occurred in 2020. We may see assassination attempts. We may see terrorist attacks. We've already seen them. That's pretty bad. And I think we'll see increasing crises like we saw after the 2020 election in which politicians can no longer agree on what the norms are, can no longer agree on what the rules are, and politicians are increasingly willing and able to circumvent and violate the rules. And so we'll slide into a much more unstable political system, a system that is plagued by constant and even permanent crisis, and is accompanied by a, a frightening level of street violence, day-to-day -day political violence. That's not a country that can thrive. That's not a country that can thrive economically. That's not a place where businesses are going to feel confident investing. That's not a country that can maintain our status and our power in the world. So what that will do, if what I've said is not enough, what that will do is it will accelerate the United States' global decline in the world. It will make us a weaker power. We're, we're evolving in that direction anyway, but it will dramatically accelerate our decline vis-a-vis -vis China and other powers in the world. That's pretty serious stuff. Very serious stuff. And thank you for outlining this for us in this way, which hopefully will also be easy to understand by people. Of course, this is a very dire 
picture to envision and to end this conversation on a little bit more of a positive note, Stephen, your insights into the, quote, myth of democratic recession are intriguing. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you believe that democracy is not in global retreat? Just to take a step back, for most of our, most of modern history, for most of the 20th century, there were a couple dozen democracies in the world. They were mostly in, in Western Europe, United States, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, a couple in Latin America. Only starting in the 1970s, and particularly in the 80s and 90s, have we seen a dramatic expansion of democracy. So we, we went through this period, which we call the third wave of democratization, which started in Southern Europe in the 70s and really accelerated with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, where the number of democracies in the world more than tripled. There was a dramatic expansion in the number of democracies in the world. That had a couple of, of, of effects. One of them was to generate uh, a this kind of undue optimism among Western observers, especially in the United States, which is Americans that I think are more prone to undue optimism and then than crazy hysteria than maybe others. So we got very optimistic. This was the era in the 1990s of the so-called end of history. And we thought the whole world was going to become democratic. Russia was going to become democratic. China was going to become democratic, Iran, Cuba, everybody. But it didn't happen. It's been after about the year 2000. What happened in the 21st century is things leveled off. You had this dramatic burst between 1975 and 2000, the end of the 20th century, a tripling of the number of democracies in the world, and then things leveled off. There are four or five fewer democracies than there were 20 years ago. So there's been a slight decline, but it's a very modest one. There's still basically triple the number of democracies that in, than at any other period in history. But people expected more. They expected things to continue to get better and better. And so if you are expecting a continued increase and instead you get a flat line or maybe a slight tick downward, you're going to look at that flat line and it's going to look terrible. And that's what happened. There's been, we, we flipped from undue optimism to undo pessimism. And we decided that that we, we're now in this global uh, recession, global democratic recession, and a resurgence of authoritarianism. And we get very fixated on a small number of important cases. Hungary is important. Venezuela is important. What happened in, in Turkey and Thailand are important. But it's actually a relatively small number. I should add India is also very important. But it's a relatively small number of cases. And there are actually a number of cases that don't get as much attention, whether it's Sri Lanka or Malaysia or Colombia or, or Ecuador, that have actually moved in a more democratic direction during the last decade. So we focus on the, the negative cases. We ignore the positive cases. And it's led to a, a sensation that all is, all is being lost, that democracy is in in a, a free fall. Now, I should note, the conditions for democracy in the world, the international environment, is in fact a lot less friendly to democracy today than it was in the 1990s. The reason why democracy took off across the world in the 1990s was that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States and Europe and Western Europe were the dominant forces in the world. They were basically hegemonic 
for about 15 years, the dominant military, economic, diplomatic, ideological, cultural power in the world. The, the U.S. and Europe were, were the only game in town between 1990 and the early 2000s. That inevitably ended. It ended in part because of the gradual rise of China, the resurgence and aggressiveness of Russia, some crises and mistakes in, in the West, the economic crisis, U.S. war in, in Iraq. A whole series of events have led to the emergence of a much more multipolar world in which the United States and Europe are still very important, very powerful, very influential, but we're no longer the only game in town. There are many other players. And that's created a world in which pro-democratic forces just simply don't have the influence, don't have the prestige, don't have the power, don't have the influence that they used to have. And so it's much easier today to be an autocrat in, the, in much of the world than it was 25 or 30 years ago. So things have gotten, it's, the neighborhood is tougher for democracies than it was 30 years ago, which is why I look at the more or less flat line of the last 30 years, the fact that the number of democracies is more or less unchanged. And I say, rather than seeing a glass half empty, I see a glass half full. I say, hey, wow, the world's gotten much more difficult for democracy in the last 25 years and yet the vast majority of democracies have managed to survive. That's important. That's good. And we need to learn from that. So a number of democracies are doing something right, and we need to learn what that is. Excellent. Thank you for putting that into context for us, Stephen. And thank you so much for making time today, for sharing your insights and your perspectives. It's certainly been very illuminating, and I'm just... So glad we got to connect. Thank you for coming on the Superhumanized podcast. Thank you for having me. Take care. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanized.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Evolution. 